Colin. How are you doing today? I'm good, Harry. I'm glad to be back on and podcasting with you. Yeah, you know, you've been slacking for a while, but we do release an episode every week. So nobody other than me knows you've been slacking. Well, we'll keep it that way, hopefully. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm excited for today's guest, Stevie. She's someone that I've followed on Twitter for a long time. And I don't actually think I've ever bumped into her, but I do think we both live in Los Angeles. So I'm sure it's a matter of time, especially now that we know what we each other look like. But Colin, you want to give her a bio read and say, hey, Stevie, how are you doing? Hey. Yeah, I'd love to read it. It's a very distinguished bio. And I've been told I have to read the teleprompter verbatim. <laughs> and I'm Ron Burgundy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so with no further ado, Stevie Klein has like, I think th at least three degrees, if not more. I like education. JD, LLM, PhD, definitely more letters. So I have zero behind my name. So it's definitely more than I have. And I think both Harry and I combined, but also is the managing partner MP degree as well of volume one ventures, early, an early stage venture fund focused on investing in highly regulated industries. Stevie is also the former co-founder of Prenome, a genetics-based healthcare startup focused on predicting and preventing pregnancy complications using custom diagnostic tests, AI, and machine learning, AI before it was cool, I hear. Prior to entering the yeah. tech sector, <laughs> she was a well-known attorney in the M&A and taxation space. She has also previously held leadership positions at John Hopkins University and the Vernon College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Steve's also the founder of Highly Regulated, uh, a newsletter I subscribe to. The regulatory compliance landscape Yay. has over 20,000 subscribers. Well done. I will also say, Stevie, I think you have a PhD in economics. Is that right? Or yep. did I get that wrong? Yeah. Yep. I, I went that no, path. No, that is correct. I went that path. I worked at the Federal Reserve for a number of years right out of college. And they, they tried to convince me. And I did apply and got into Cal. But I met my wife and decided to not go the PhD route. I was, I said, you know what, maybe four years, not enough money. I, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll get a job. And so that's what I did. So, but yeah, uh, no, I, I just, I really did not want to get a job. So I just kept going to school. <laughs> like school was my, was my thing. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to just keep going. Yeah. This seems fine. Yeah. Nothing to see here. Do you think all that schooling has sort of given you a leg up in your career and or investing or how do you sort of feel about it now? Like looking back. So I actually do, but I think my reason for it is probably a little different. So when I, when I went to college, my, the advice my mother gave me was, you know, take classes and things that interest you and things that you wouldn't necessarily mm -hmm. be into normally. You know, I took my time in school, obviously. I ended up like the classes I enjoyed the most were like, I took sociology classes. So I know a ton randomly about prisons in America. Um, yeah. I got really into geology only because the geology professor at Ohio State, had, he was from New Zealand and he loved to talk about sheep. And I was a farm kid, so I was just like, yes, this man's going to talk about sheep in a foreign accent. I'm here. I took every single one of this guy's classes to the point where they were like, are you trying to minor or like major in geology? I was like, no, I just like his accent. But like I went to yeah. every single class. So like I was getting like A pluses in geology and people are like, why? And I'm like, I'm just wrapped with attention about his sheep stories. So, no, I took a lot of random classes. I really followed just kind of the rainbow into kind of oblivion. I was just like, I just want to 
take classes I'm interested in. I originally thought I was going to be a veterinarian. Turns out I don't like blood. <laughs> Anyone that knows me knows that's actually true. I like recoil at the sight of blood. I will faint. So I ended up kind of being like, well, I don't know what to do. I'm not going to be a vet. My whole life thought I was going to be a vet. Did the only thing that kind of seemed natural in the United States of America. I was like, I'm going to be a lawyer. Like, let's do this. So yeah, I, I decided to pivot, went and I was like, oh, well, I'll be an environmental lawyer because then I'll mm -hmm. still get to, you know, do things with animals. I, I spent most of my three years in law school doing a paper on the whaling industry. So I got really involved in kind of sea creatures and like what that life is like only to graduate and realize that I really only was prepared to work for like one person and that was Greenpeace and I was like oh yeah, yeah that's great and then I saw the salary and I was like <laughs> so that's not gonna work for me at all <laughs> So I ended up, you know, just being like, okay, I need to do something. Went, decided I was going to go the opposite route, got really into taxes. I've always loved doing people's taxes. So I was just like, I'm going to go be a tax lawyer. There is money in that. And it's, yeah. you know, fortunately one that's really important, especially in the United States, just because we have such a complicated tax system. I, I really enjoyed working on that side of things. My career was very early on, very focused on that, but I, I got really involved with working with a lot of startups that were doing M&As early in my career. So that's really when I started angel investing, which was around 2008-2009. Um, so probably, you know, just jumped in head first into kind of that sector. What was your I, first I, angel investment? First angel investment. Actually, it was a biotech that got bought by Thermo Fisher. So very, and oddly, I was not in healthcare at that point. I was, I didn't really get into healthcare until about 2015, 2016. Mm -hmm. So when I went to work at Johns Hopkins, I spent a lot of my time actually in China, got really involved in international startups as well, and then left there, went to work at ACOG, which was a, a phenomenal time. It got me really involved in healthcare. I decided to start my own company out of there. Excited about it, but it's definitely, it's just a different kind of background for sure. Yeah, definitely. Very cool. And that first angel investment that you made, what was the impetus? How much or whatever you want to share there? It seems like it was a good outcome. Yeah. If, uh, the company got bought too. So one for one. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm actually really proud of myself because, you know, I probably have done 250 investments, 08, and none of them have gone belly up. But I, I do think, unfortunately, just because the market and where we're at now, I think some of I think some of the more recent vintages will probably see some some people who unfortunately are going to have to either pivot very heavily or are going to go to zero. So I don't think I'll have a perfect, I don't think it's going to last that long. But yeah, the impetus for that. So it was a startup that had called me just out of the blue about they needed legal advice. When you're a lawyer, you get a lot of people who just are like, hey, I need free legal advice. And sometimes you feel bad for them and you're like, sure, I'll help you yeah. out. You know, and, and sometimes, you know, I worked at a, a huge firm and they were like, no, they they yeah. can pay. <laughs> so, you know, this was just one that I, I felt really bad for the founders because they were very, very early stage. I was like, can I, can I finagle this to be pro bono? It had something to do with genetics, which my undergraduate degree was around. Unfortunately, though, my undergraduate degree was like genetics for like dairy cows. So a little different, but. You know, I really liked the team. I thought they, they needed a lot of help, but it was more on like the regulatory side and kind of how are they going to go to market and like, how are they going to get their clinical trial done? All of which was stuff that like I was, even though I was in tax because of the M&A side of things, I was starting to get really involved with the regulatory front. You know, I was expected to kind of know what regulations we needed to kind of look at and like what we were planning on like 
telling clients about regulation. So it was definitely something I was starting to get involved with then. It was a whim. I didn't grow up in an environment, like grew up on a farm. I'm not the person that grew up with like finance all around. It was somewhat in my life, but it wasn't like the focal point of it. You know, growing up where I grew up, it's just very wasn't a thing. I didn't know startup investing was like a thing. I had someone ask me not that long ago, they were like, why are you just now raising a fund? Do you, Cause I've probably invested, you know, according to my accountant, like $31 million. So he's like, why are you just now raising a fund? And I was like, I didn't grow up knowing oh. this was like a career. <laughs> like I didn't know it was a career. I was just like, oh, okay. It's something I do. It's like, I like working with startups. So yeah. that's why I made the first investment. That's why I continued to make investments. And so when you actually do start to learn that like, oh, this is an actual career, y'all. Did y'all know this? Like, people do this <laughs> yeah. for a yeah. living. It's interesting now, though, because I like, get a lot of people, you do talk to a lot of founders who are like, oh, well, you, you, you know, you, you make your money from management fees. And like, like, well, that's not entirely true because I don't, you know, we're raising our funds. So like, I make my money. I do a ton of consulting for big pharmaceutical companies, Fortune 500 companies, uh, the banking industry. I also am a registered lobbyist. So like, that's where I make my money. And so that's super cool. Every once yeah. in a while, it's kind of like, it's super annoying when you don't make your money from management fees. And everyone's like, all those management fees. And I'm like, yeah. no, yeah, well, I'm so uh, much poorer yeah. now. <laughs> well, well, let's talk, let's dive into some of the logistics of that fund. You mentioned that you've made 250 angel investments since 20, uh, 2008. How many, for, let, let's talk a little bit about the fund. You said you're raising right now. How many, what's, what's the sort of target and where are you at right yeah. now? Yeah. So right now we're raising a 30 million fund. That's our target size, just because I think that makes the most amount of sense. I, because of my economics background, I'm really focused on like, I, I know kind of what I want this fund to return. And I think 30 is like the perfect number to get the return mm -hmm. size that I want. We do have a ownership target. So 10 to 20% is our ownership target. We get that through investment and also our advisory shares. We are probably halfway through our soft commits phase. The plan yeah. is our first close is in September. So I was telling you guys earlier, I'm going and I'm, I'm out raising money right now. So again, it's not that much different from being a founder because you're like, still like, hello, please give me money. <laughs> it's just, you're asking different people for money, but I find it really exciting because I, you know, I try and really work with LPs that I think are good people that I think can really add to the success of our companies. Again, we're, we're investing in highly regulated industries. So these are places that I don't want to have an LP that's like, no, go rogue. And you're like, no, mm -hmm. that means we'll go to zero. So yeah, we we're a pre-seed fund. So we're really, really early stage. We want to be the first check in. We will lead, we'll co-lead. We really kind of thought a lot about what this fund is and what it was going to look like. And like so much has changed since like I thought about doing the fund, you know, a year ago. So that it's kind of our thesis has changed. What we want to invest in has changed. But also, you know, I'm not a big fan of like jumping on like the bubbles. You know, again, I, I was working on AI when it was not popular. Like, oh my God, working in AI and like, oh, eight, like 18 to like 21, people were just like, no, is that real? Is that magic? And you're like, Oh my God, <laughs> you know, try, trying to, trying to explain like, you know, oh, we have to train our model. And they're like, they're imagining like dog trainers and you're just like, oh my God, like I, I can't. So, you know, I'm really not a fan of the bubbles. I really do want to make sure that we're 
we have a sustainable fund. Like I view this as like, this is fund one of many. So I don't want yeah. this to just be like, oh, we invested all our money in AI and now we're broke. It's a question for you. So highly regulated, I think maybe I'd like to actually understand what a highly regulated industry is. Uh, I mean, to an extent, everything's yeah. regulated by some law, but what, what's your definition there? What's a, what's a highly regulated, uh, well, what makes it so? Yeah, so, so I always tell people highly regulated to me means you cannot get something to market without talking to a regulator or it's something that like to make it, you need to have a permit for it. You need to have a permit to sell it, like something like that. So yeah, for me, that is like FinTech especially anything in the crypto industry, healthcare, pretty much any, I tell people anything to do with healthcare is going to be regulated. Mm -hmm. People are always like, no, it's not. Cause there's this one little loophole. And I'm just like, loophole does not mean the FDA is not going to send your ass a letter. Like it's going <laughs> to happen. So God love people that like are, everyone always is looking for a loophole. It's like, no, there's mine's always... not regulated. It's like yeah. everything is. Always optimist. Question yeah. for you. So things like food and, oh no, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, so given that, like, that's the case, there's some barrier to entry, some hurdle, or hopefully some loopholes, but yeah. most likely not just paying a lot of lawyers to help you get through this, probably people like Stevie, what, like about that, what characteristics, what, what makes it a good investment? I mean, I get the barrier to entry part, but why is it a good investment category? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so for me, I always say like, I want to be able to save these people money. I've been called by so many startups, to, you know fix something. And I'm like, it's really expensive when you're, you know, a series A, B, C company, and you can't go to market because you've already gone down the wrong regulatory pathway. And that happens way more. Like it, it happens at least once a week, I get a call from someone that's like, Oh, we just got a letter from the SEC. We just got a letter from the FDA, just got a letter from the FTC, just got a letter from so and so hmm. it's always a government entity there's always been more than one letter and they've just ignored them until they got increasingly aggressive and then they're just like help and you're like you did not raise enough money to hire enough lawyers to fix this and that's unfortunately what i see just as a general trend people don't really bring regulatory in until it's too late Example it's expensive of that in real life stevie anything in crypto anything, anything in crypto anything in crypto i feel like as an industry they were like immune to talking to lawyers and regulatory mm -hmm. uh, you know i i any it's it's really sad because like i do think there's a, some really like i'm super bullish on crypto because you know yeah. i spent my early years in west virginia which is a people that are amazing so lovely they hate the government it's <laughs> this is the funniest thing like they're so like whenever people are like the people with coffee cans i'm like no i grew up with those people i'm like they would love crypto if they could actually use it. So it's kind of interesting to see that, like, just as an industry, they took the ethos of, you know, we don't need that too yeah. seriously. It's like, well, if you don't need it, it's never going to get used and there's no market protections. And without market protections, just you'll end up one of two ways. You'll end up with the current treasury situation that we have now, or you'll end up dead. You got to figure that out. Anything in crypto is really my best example because we see so many people that are, especially when some people are literally like, oh, I'm raising a token to raise money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're like, we yeah. know what that is. We have many names for it securities is one and they're just like no no i'm not a security and you're like what are you doing well i'm raising money through a token and you're like yeah 
So what do you recommend to startups like in that? I think the, the crypto example now is like kind of a good one because, you know, I think like I'm no expert in crypto, but, you know, I think I've even heard the stories, right, of people. Now there's a bunch of issues with, you know, startups that were trying to basically raise tokens and they weren't, you know, classifying them as securities when they were. Yeah. But what do you kind of recommend to startups? Because sometimes there is sort of a fine line. Well, actually, yeah. you know, you tell me, is there a fine line that you need to walk or is it often black and white, right? Like I feel like the whole ethos of startups is to kind of like, you know, push the barriers, right? Like Uber and Lyft, you know, from my background being yeah. a good example, right? Like if they would have yeah. waited for government approval, they never would have got it. At the start, they had really shitty insurance and there was like a huge incident in San Francisco that was like really unfortunate with a little girl, you know, and it was like, then that yeah. kind of, you know, determined, okay, we need to classify them as, you know, a transportation network company and they need to provide insurance. So what do you kind of advise startups in that like kind of gray area, black and white or push? Like yeah. how do you know when to push and when not? Uber and Lyft is a great example because I, I do think we're not going to see a situation like that for a while because that was a new, essentially a new sector. And it was a space where you could really push the boundaries and trying to figure out what was actually going on. And something that I always tell people is like, it was really, it was a prime thing for, for change because, you know, a lot of economists have done a lot of research on medallions in, right. in the taxis in New York City. And, and it was right for for change. And I think that's also where like the regulatory structure was actually a good thing because like for people it was like it's actually taking out a lot of really bad things that were going on with the medallion structures. And so that was change that was really necessary. And so there was a lot of support in places that people don't realize. Like a lot of criminal prosecutors were very much in favor of Lyft and Uber and the changes that they were bringing on because of the down the road criminal structures that were kind of going to be upended. Like a lot of people don't actually know that. They're like, well, why? And I was like, well, a lot of Rico people were excited about Uber and Lyft mm -hmm. and the changes because medallion structures were kind of thought of as kind of a mob entity they were thought yeah. of promoting some criminal entity so that there was a lot of things i think that there were, were literal in. ties to the mob i think the new york times did a big article they're like yes. literal ties from the exactly. system exactly to the mob. so that so that's why like people don't really understand that that was a very unique thing but mm -hmm. it was also unique in that down the line, there were other structures that they were upending that people were in favor of upending. We don't really see that often. That's like a once in a lifetime thing. So every time I get someone that's like, yeah, I'm gonna make new Web3 and we're like Uber and Lyft mm. and I'm just like, no, you're literally setting up structures for child pornography to get on the internet. People Got like it. just, they don't really think about that. They're really like, so I you think, think that sort of most new ideas fit in some kind of existing framework, right? Like the crypto, the tokens, like, no, it's nothing new or special. It is a security. We already have laws and rules for securities. Yeah, I, I do time. think most of the time. I Like I said, like, I think it's very rare that you see something that is something that new. And if it is, the reason those regulations are going to be made in favor of that industry are because it's going to upend other structures. Like, I think that was, mm -hmm. like I said, like, I think the mob ties is something that people didn't really think about, but it was one really pro for yeah. things like Uber and Lyft. So when we think about highly regulated industries, which are the ones that you're sort of most bullish on, either from investment opportunity going forward or just personal excitement level going forward? Yeah. Maybe combo both. 
Yeah. So I always, I, my, my investment structure always comes from, Hey, will I use this? Or do I know someone that will use this? Like, is this going to play mm-hmm. in mill? And I think my biggest frustration, I'm also an LP and I have a ton of funds and my mm-hmm. biggest problem as an LP is a lot of people invest in things that like will only be used in Silicon Valley. They're like, yeah, mm-hmm. this plays really well. I'm like, it plays really well in Palo Alto, but like, I spend a significant amount of time in Ohio with my family. And let me tell you, some things are never going to play well to middle America. And it's incredibly frustrating to see billions of dollars get pumped into something. And when the argument is like, it's for everyone. And you're like, no, you literally spent a hundred billion dollars on something that 20,000 people on Twitter will want. And that's, it's, it's problematic. Like it really is. We, we really have a bubble thought process. And so when I make investments, I always think about like little kid me in Ohio. Like, is this something I'm going to use? Is this something that's going to be helpful? For me, Uber is really helpful. So I'm really happy that Uber is a thing. Uber and Lyft are how I get home from the airport in Ohio. Because like, and I don't live in a city. Like I got to get in some Poor schmuck picks my ass up and drives me 45 minutes to my house and they get to listen to me talk about cows. So like, it's really helpful because unfortunately, like sometimes milking is the same time as my flights landing. So it's, it's, (laughs) it is what it is. Like, you know, that is something that I think we do have to think about is like, is this going to be used in middle America? Is this something that, you know, the people that might not have a voice in Silicon Valley that, but should would actually be using yeah, yeah. It, it's really problematic just because i see it so much people are just like i'm building it for everyone and then you're like you don't know what you're talking about like i see it in fintech a lot i see a lot of fintechs that are like we're building for everyone and it's you know five white dudes from goldman sachs that have lived in new york city their whole life and they have gone to ivy league schools and they're like yeah we're building for low-income people and i'm like have you even talked to a low-income person like ever like just ever <laughs> yeah like but a very similar thing when i at outdoorsy where you know airbnb of rvs right and it was funny because we talked to investors on the coast and they were like not so interesting palo alto there's literally rvs on the street that people are living in so when they thought of rv they thought of that and, yeah. you know, it always struck me there was something that's like, I don't know, what, what I call like sneaky large TAMs that come from like blind spots. And, you know, it's like, if, like funny statistics, like one in six households in America owns an RV. And that was like one of those yeah. things that was like, I heard that and I was like, holy, wow, that's huge. And if this Dude, hits, I, I go to the, the Bone yeah. RV show every year in Columbus, <laughs> Ohio. So yeah. like uh, one day that's my dream. <laughs> Yeah. So I, I like that investment thesis personally. That's a little bit where I like live too, is like, you know, cause that's maybe where you have an edge if you can see, you know, a bit outside the box. Now, I'm from Alaska and you know, it's a very oh beautiful God. place. So there's also like two. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like, it's, yeah, it's a very different place. Definitely. Well, we really appreciate all the advice. And before we move on to our trending Twitter threads and get your takes, we will leave links to in the show notes to Volume One Ventures and your newsletter, which seems oh. like a great read. And anything else, where should folks reach out to you or pitch you? What's the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah, best way to reach out, my email, stevie at vol1ventures.com. Also Twitter, at Stevie McTweets. McTweets is not my last name. For the love of God, I get that question so much. I'm like, it's not my last name. Not oh my, my last name. All <laughs> right. 
Awesome. Well, we'll add that all to the show notes. And then before we let you go, we've got two tweets for you today that we'll get your quick take on. So the first one is here from Gokul at DoorDash. He is probably the most active, like one of the most active angels. I always see his name on cap tables, by the way. He says, just spoke with a founder who's shutting down their company. Over the last few years, the company built a handful of products that people oohed and awed over, professed love for when asked for feedback, but very few people actually use daily or willing to pay. Founders, the difference between a nice-to-have and a must-have product is so tiny that if you don't realize or own it, you might end up spending years of your life building something that doesn't have the impact on the world you aim for. You owe it to your stakeholders and to yourself to be honest with yourself. Okay, sort of a long one, but what do you think, Stevie? Yeah, I mean, I, I shut down my company, and I will say he's he's spot on, especially in healthcare. People don't pay for healthcare in the United States, and that's something that nobody nobody ever believes. They're like, no, and I'm like, well, when was the last time you paid for something for healthcare? And then they're like, um, let me think about that. But it's really true, and I think the number one mistake I see from people is they start companies and spaces they don't know anything about the customer, and they don't really know what the customer's motivations are. A lot of misunderstood motivations along the lines of what customers are thinking is the biggest mistakes I see right now. I think Mark noted it pretty well is that like, there's like really easy to have like false positives in startups. Like you can have like early success that you then extrapolate to be the future success. And oftentimes it is like largely ephemeral. And so it's a mirage. it's a mirage. It really is. Especially if you are just talking to people like at other startups or other founders like that. If you're just in a bubble of thought, it's going to be really hard to actually have a good product that people want to use. So I saw this comment and actually this just happened to me. One of the startups that you know, was pretty early stage, they basically just pivoted away from their initial idea. And Suraj here asked, how can someone avoid quitting prematurely? Are there clear signs to move on versus try harder, right? Because I feel like that's the, you know, you hear all these stories, right? About Airbnb or others where it's just like, yeah, yeah they just kept pushing and then pivoted or whatever, right? It's like, how do you know when it is time to quit? What do you tell uh, the companies that you've invested in? The founders? Yeah, I I mean, right now, I, I will say like right now, there's a ton of companies that reach out and they're just like, should I stop? And I'm like, if you're yeah. asking yourself, should I stop? That you know the answer. Mm. You're just looking for external validation. If you're okay. asking, should I stop? Stop. If you run out of money, stop. Like I always tell people like, <laughs> Oh my God, the amount of people who are like, where should I get like a loan? I'm like, don't get a, don't get a personal loan for a startup. Like the numbers do not lie. You're literally taking on personal debt for a company that like, even if it does go on to make billions of dollars, the chances of you even making up the money from that loan are really low. You know, I, I, that's the number one. If you're out of money, stop. Go go get a job. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I have to say that. I feel like that should be common sense. The well, second and final tweet uh, that we're going to get your feedback on is from the more famous Harry, Harry Stebbings. And Colin, you want to read this one and we'll get Stevie's take? Kind yeah. of related too. So I like this one. Yeah. I think he's got better hair too, I think. Uh, I don't Contrary... know about that. He's definitely more famous. I don't know about better hair, but we can better accent. That later. Better accent. Yeah. Is... Contrary. Contrarian take. I do not believe you have to be passionate about the space you are funding or founding a business in. You have to be insanely passionate to win. But this idea you have to love idealistically the space to be successful is wrong and misleading. And what do you think? Okay, so I agree on some things, but I will also say 
I disagree because I've seen way too many men who are like founders in women's health that don't know shit about women. And I'm just <laughs> like, for the love of God, go do like something else, anything else, but please stop talking about my ovaries. Yeah, that's that. So I'm just like, there's some exceptions here, but I don't necessarily think that like there's nobody, nobody on this world, like anywhere is like super passionate about sass. Like, mm. who is that per? Like, stop <laughs> lying. You're not that excited about sass. Like, like I don't know uh, why that they are even pretending. But like, yeah. Mm, yeah. Please don't tell me you're super passionate about my ovaries. That's kind of that's well, one of my biggest pet peeves. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think one distinction I like to make between these two things is, which I think is easy to conflate, is to make a great product you inherently need to understand your customer and be passionate about solving something for that customer. But to run a great company, you do not have to be passionate about what they yeah. do, right? Because there are two different skill sets. And I think, I think that's inherently as an investor, really hard to meet out early stage is like, is this person going to create a great and useful product that people want and are going to pay for? Because that is product market fit at the end of the day, in some sense, versus are they a great, person to run the business that is the business of selling this product. So I think that's my, dis yeah. like my distinction. Yeah. I, I agree with that completely. Very cool. All right. Well, enough hot Twitter takes for one uh, day, we but could go no, all day. no shortage in the future. So we appreciate you coming on Stevie and we'll look Thank forward to reading and hearing from you in the future. Thank you. Thank you guys.